You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hallo und willkommen beim The Anarchaeologist Podcast, ein Stück von der Archaeology Podcast Network. right in actually yeah i know i should really start doing it um yeah. professionally <laughs> saturday evening show over here oh yeah no definitely um welcome to the anarchaeologist podcast in the room with me today well the internet room today i have the wonderful jens nortroff a archaeologist and real life indiana jones thank you for coming on to the show today thanks for the invitation yeah my pleasure to be here actually it's absolutely fantastic to have you as well because it's been such a long time of us trying to uh, sort out what kind of uh, what works uh, time-wise for both of us. So it took quite a time, yeah. Uh, but but we're here finally. And what's interesting about Yen's work is primarily Gobleke Tepe. If you're not familiar with Gobleke Tepe, it's a site in the south uh, of Turkey, and it's one of the most um, intriguing sites for a number of reasons. But unfortunately, it's been picked up by a lot of um, alternative publications and people who believe in very strange things. But let's start at the st- yeah. yeah. Let's start at the start, Jens. Um, so, how did that? How did you even get? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Gobleke Tepe? Uh, first, um, I know it's a very difficult name, but it's actually spelled Gobekli Tepe. So it's oh. an L in your spelling, I think. Oh, sorry. sorry. Uh, say it no, again. No, no. Say it again so I can hear it right. Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, no, Gobekli no. Tepe. Well, what does it mean? Yeah, the, the Tepe actually is just a mound or hill in Turkish. Mm-hmm. And the Göbek in Turkish actually is the belly. So um, I'm not sure where the name is coming uh, from exactly, but if you look at the at the mount today, if you look at the pictures on the internet from a distance, it somehow looks like a belly. You know, it's an artificial raised mm-hmm. mount up to 15 meter high, and it really looks somehow like a belly with a navel in the middle. So I can see where the name might have come from, actually. All right. So yeah, pardon, but I, I completely uh, uh, forgot your original question. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Gobleke Tepe. Uh, Gobleke Tepe. I can't even say it anymore. Just, uh, call it GT from now on. It's easier. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about GT, the site itself. And um, it's actually quite an interesting site. It, I think it was first discovered, um, well, scientifically first discovered in the late sixties by a joint survey team from the universities of Istanbul and Chicago. Mm-hmm. And they noted that there are a lot of um, stone tools lying around, you know, a lot of uh, flint, chipped flint, and so on. And that basically was it. They didn't thought there was anything more to it, and they actually thought it would not be uh, 
quite a good idea to dig there because some of the stones we were seeing before were uh, remains of an uh, Islamic cemetery or something like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, the site was recorded as probably Neolithic, but when basically um, forgotten or regarded as not as interesting. And then my former boss, the project leader of the uh, uh, Göbekli Tepe project, Klaus Schmidt, who passed away um, last year, I think, no, two years ago, um, sadly, when he um, finished his uh, PhD, I think, he traveled to Turkey to visit a lot of these Neolithic places to just get an idea on future research, what could be done, and so on. And he also visited uh, Göbekli Tepe in 1995, uh, yeah, 1995. Yeah. And he noticed that the stones digging out of the out of the um, the fields where the, the mound basically was used for agriculture by modern farmers, and he recognized one of these worked stones because he was excavating at a, another site not that far away from from Tepe, actually Nivelichori, where for the first time these T-shaped pillars were excavated. And he recognized one of the the stones sticking out of the the field as uh, remains of such a as a fragment of such a T-shaped pillar. And he knew where the mound was actually more than just an Islamic uh, cemetery. So he put it um, like like in, in in his book, I think he said. And that moment, he knew he could either turn away and don't tell anyone, or he spent the rest of his life. Uh, at the mound, excavating there, and well, that's what he basically did. <laughs> that's the discovery, history of Göbekli Tepe, actually. Yeah. Uh, to, to just make it uh, short, to come to an end, um, the mound actually uh, turned out to hold monumental architecture, the oldest monumental architecture we know for now, circular enclosures uh, built from T-shaped pillars, Mm -hmm. and dating to the 10th millennium BC, so right after the last ice age, when hunter-gatherers somehow started to develop an idea of a different mode of, of living, the so-called Neolithic uh, uh, mode of living, agriculture and everything mm -hmm. connected. And uh, obviously, um, you got involved with this uh, through your study. Uh, I mean, were you looking for? Were you looking to work at GT, or was it just a? To to be honest, my my own research interest in the beginning and it still it still is is the Bronze Age. Oh. But um, at some point, as a student, I um, just heard that they needed um, student assistance, and so I got involved with the German Archaeological Institute and with Klaus Schmidt. In the beginning, I was working for a different project, uh, an excavation in Jordan, where a uh, chalcolithic uh, early center of metallurgy um, uh, was researched and excavated in Aqaba in the south of Jordan. And this is how I got uh, into contact with Klaus Schmidt, and, and it was only a short step to be involved into the um, Göbekli Tepe research project from then. And after I graduated, I somehow just stuck, and well, today I'm still there <laughs> as a researcher. Yeah in the project yeah and uh, what's really interesting as you've said before is that this is the earliest known monumental architecture available and, the, the, uh, the erect, erected by man of course we know okay, all the yeah. natural crevices and so on but this is definitely the oldest erected architecture monumental architecture by man yeah and um, 
there's also um, what's quite fascinating is the the artwork that's kind of etched into these stones. I mean, these are not just plain stones like you'd find at Stonehenge. These are stones with um, markings on them. Can you describe some of the markings? Yes. Actually, it's a uh, local limestone, so we al we already know where the uh, quarries are. We've seen them in the surroundings of the of the site, and it's a very soft limestone, so it's easy to work with stone tools actually. And we also found a lot of the stone stone tools were used, mm -hmm. and we have different kind of reliefs uh, on these T-shaped pillars. Mm -hmm. So there are rather flat reliefs, basically carved into the into the stone. And we also have high reliefs, so really plastic um, worked kind of sculptures attached to these pillars, but worked from one piece. And they basically depict animals, um, rather nasty animals, what we would consider nasty animals, like scorpions and snakes and spiders. Uh, but also um, a variety of um, yeah, maybe the game uh, these hunters were, were connected to. So we have gazelle, we have a lot of boars, we have foxes, aurochs, and so on. So it's a real Stone Age zoo, if you want to, to put it that way. Yeah. We also have a few depictions of uh, human beings. Interestingly, often in a not very favorable state. So we are missing the heads or we are separated heads and so on. So it seems like... Um, it's not just a decoration, it seems some kind of um, knowledge container, so mm. someone depicting a bigger story we don't understand, maybe some mythological background. Yeah. And um, obviously, coming, uh, this is basically where uh, GT intersects with modern day life. I mean, um, because of the way these stones are made and because of the oldest ones around it's led to some people uh to believe that well it wasn't just humans doing this i mean what is the craziest or most common story that you hear um the most i wouldn't even call it crazy it's uh, rather disturbing the most common story is that uh, the uh, people of the ppm the pre-popular neolithic so 10th millennium bc they're just not able to to do something like this so these fringe archaeology conspiracy theorists basically think that our ancestors who were intellectually on the same level as we are, so we are not, our brains are not bigger than uh, those of the PBM people, that these people were just not able to do something like this, that they were too dumb or not skilled enough to cut stones, move stones and build uh, these, these enclosures. That's uh, the most common point. They should they needed help from outside and whether this is a lost super civilization from atlantis or some aliens um yeah that's uh, the the toppers in this story so it's always they were not able to do it themselves so they needed someone else doing it for them and well excavating there we see the evidence that they did it themselves so we have the stone tools and everything and yeah that's the basic theory uh about about the site, the fringe theory. And they course, had they had help from outside. You are quite um, like um, you're quite uh, active online, and because a lot of this is now you know from all over the world, you'll get people with their own theories and everything. I mean, do you get a lot of emails? We get a lot of emails. Yeah, a lot of emails. People, a lot of people just uh, suggesting their ideas and offering. Um, 
interpretation and this is fine but also a lot of emails um, actually accusing us back the truth or ignoring the truth and this is why I started to be a bit more active online you know it would be wrong to just leave the fields to to fringe conspiracy because they are easier to reach. It's much more easier to buy a book uh, on, on, on some alien theory than actually get your hands on our research data. And this is a real problem, I think. So we should be much, much more visible in public to actually compete with, with these fringe uh, theories, to just show what we are doing, what our research mm -hmm. results are, and that they are not locked in our ivory, ivory towers and don't telling anyone about our mm -hmm. research. So. Some of your to be yeah more active online yeah. Now some of your research um, is published in journals and stuff like that, but there isn't a lot available online, um, which you know is it's a problem for any archaeology really, because you know it's a, how how do you get it out there in a format that everybody can read, but I remember um, reading some of the reports talking about the issues with dating, and because this is such a interesting site, um, it's quite it, it actually has some challenges to do with the time it was actually you know the actual specific exactly the, like date the chronology range. definitely is one of the largest issues we have to deal with for sure. And what, what, can you explain to our listeners just a few of the things that you've had to deal with when it comes to chronology? Yeah, yeah. The the main problem is that we're talking about this um, other side consists on uh, of basically two layers uh, according to our research right now. We have an older layer of monumental uh, enclosures. This is the very um, the famous uh, pictures you see on the internet, and we also have a layer of rather smaller rectangular buildings on top of these, somehow reducing the size of the enclosures, now becoming rectangular rooms, reducing the number and the size of the pillars as well. So there are only a few and smaller pillars in these rectangular rooms who um, seem to date a bit later, and we have some parallels to these um, rectangular rooms and T-shaped pillars in other sites like Nivalichori I mentioned in the beginning. So this is where we start with. We have two different layers in, in the architectural record already. Now, the problem is that um, the uh, hunter-gatherers or whoever actually used the uh, enclosures, the monumental older ones, at the end of their youth lives, decided for some reason to bury them. So the whole mound we see today, this 15-meter-high uh, mound of Gobekli Tepe, is artificially raised by humans, burying, actually burying these enclosures. And... Okay. That means that what we are excavating there is not anything connected to the use of these enclosures, but it's a later added filling. Mm -hmm. And we now have to think about where does the stuff come from which uh, that they fill the enclosures. So it's a lot of uh, limestone rubble, a lot of bones, animal bones, and a lot of um, debris from uh, stone tools. So it belongs to the Neolithic period. That's uh, for sure we can say that. And the rubble looks like um, it belongs to the quarry work and so on. We also have sculpture fragments and so, such stuff. But we cannot relate the filling directly to the use of the enclosures or to the construction of the enclosures. So this means any date we obtain from the filling just tells us something about the time of the backfilling of the enclosures, but not of the, about the erection. Mm -hmm. 
so that yeah sorry go on yeah we we, we can date uh, the enclosures due to um, we have some organic material in the wall cluster so this gives us at least an idea about the plastering of the walls of course this could be renewed every now and then so it may be just indicate the last phase of this uh, wall plastering but at least we have dates for the plaster of the wall and in one enclosure this is the middle of the 10th millennium bc while the um, filling is not that much later actually problem is um, to just come to an end problem is that the animal bones don't work for radiocarbon dating due to really bad um, preservation conditions Okay, well, let's actually talk about the um, the environment that this site is in. I mean, preservation conditions are such a there's they are such a big deal um, in in archaeology, especially to do with um, you know obviously you've um, it's very dusty and warm and dry out in the in the desert. I'm assuming out in the desert. Um, so it depends. Actually, we also it's dry in summer and pretty wet in winter. Actually, so it, uh, winter is the rainy season, so to say. Ah, okay. So, what are the preservation conditions at Gobleketepe, and what does that do? Um, first, actually, the preservation of the archaeology of the architecture is really well because these people did us a great favor by burying it. So last uh, 10,000 years, it was just buried and uh, sealed and covered. And that's fine. That actually explains the really good preservation of the architecture, the upright standing pillars and the walls and everything. But due to uh, climate conditions, um, the organic stuff, so like bones, by they are preserved, the interesting part of the bones you need for dating, like uh, collagen and so on, is not well preserved, the appetite and so on. It's really a problem to do um, dating with uh, organic material like bones. And that's why we are really um, relying on, on charcoal, basically. So we have small charcoal pieces within the filling. We have small charcoal pieces in the mud plaster of the walls, as I mentioned. So that's um, the better, better uh, part for dating. But the overall conservation preservation of the site is quite good due to due to burying it all that's actually was a clever idea of the hunter-gatherers actually and um i'm just wondering obviously um archaeologists use things like um the the types of animal bones and the number of animals uh specimens on site to have an idea about diet i mean um obviously it was a monumental site that had some sort of um, significance was it somewhere people lived feasted is there something you can say about the animal bones that were found there it's a big discussion and um, we established actually the interpretation that this is not a settlement site uh, some colleagues uh, quite disagree with this interpretation um, but first of all the position, the situation of Göbekli Tepe is highly erratic. It sits on the highest point of a mountain range, far away from any water source. So it would be quite interesting to establish a settlement there. They may have cisterns or something, but I'm, I'm not sure this works um, for, for a whole settlement. Then second, we actually we know how settlement architecture look at this time. So there are a few settlements known also from Turkey, like uh, Chayuni Tepezi, for example. Mm-hmm. And Nivalichori I also mentioned and this architecture looks completely different from what we uh, excavated at Göbekli Tepe 
But interesting, these uh, so-called settlements, each of the settlements excavated in a, in a scale large enough, at some point um, produces some kind of special purpose building for uh, communal gatherings or for any, any other reasons, different from the uh, other settlement architecture. And now these special purpose uh, buildings look pretty similar to what we uncovered at Göbekli Tepe. So with uh, upright stones, with benches, and uh, so it's it's rather related. So it looks like as if we at Göbekli Tepe have only this special architecture. And this is what makes us rather sure this is not a, a real settlement. So now the question comes, why? Why on, on this uh, remote mountain, why to establish such a special ritual architecture? And we know from uh, ethnographic record, actually, that hunter-gatherer groups need to, to meet at certain occasions, be it for um, exchange of, of marriage partners or information or whatever. And personally, I'm convinced that the, the mount of Göbekli Tepe was such a gathering point even before they started to produce architecture there. Because mm -hmm. it's the high point around, it's visible from all around, so it's a real landmark. It's a, it's a natural point to... To, appoint, to, 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 to gather, to meet. Yeah. And this is what these hunter-gatherers did uh, actually there as well. Then the, you mentioned the animal bones, and we have a lot of animal bones in the filling. And interestingly, it's basically um, gazelle and aurochs, so the meaty animals actually. Mm -hmm. And um, from aurochs, only the parts with, with, which, are, which is carrying the meat. So they, they look like traces of real huge meat uh, meals. Yeah. So what they did there is probably they were feasting, gathering there, have, throwing big parties, and um, yeah, just meeting there for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think or we think that uh, one of the basic reasons to meet there and throw these parties is to um, construct these enclosures. So we also know this from uh, from ethnographic uh, parallels that the best way to um, obtain to to um, attract. Um, attract the workforce necessary for big communal projects is work feast, workforce feasting, so to say. So you okay. throw a party, a lot of people are coming, and then you have the people there, and you can start um, with your communal project. Mm. Nice. That's uh, yeah. No, I like that. It's like um, it's like a potluck. It's like everybody, yeah, everybody brings dish, please. You know, everybody do a little bit of work. <laughs> and you know, I can even even uh, go a step further. We, we wrote a paper on it, but no, it's um, a bit tongue-in-cheek, actually. Um, we have a l really large stone vessels at Gerberg Tepe, up to 100 liters. Wow. Um, wow. You know, one of the major parts of uh, the so-called Neolithic package uh, discussed is that um, we um, turned out towards uh, agriculture, so mm -hmm. to domesticate plants and so on. Uh, not far from Gerberg Tepe, actually, um, is one of the sites there genetically... Uh, the oldest einkorn, uh, domesticated einkorn uh, plants could be um, could be proven by by uh, analyzers. It's a Karachada um, volcanic mountain not far. So we're in a in an area where also first um, experiments with domestication of grain started. Mm -hmm. And an interesting theory is that this actually was in the beginning maybe not at all to to make bread or, or something, but to uh, brew beer actually. It's much easier to make beer from grain. Then, when bread, you just add water, uh, put in your grain, and let it rest in the sun for a couple of hours, and you have some kind of proto beer. And the interesting okay. part is that 
the stone vessels we have there is a residue on the inside and this this may have um, it looks like a, a, um, some stuff developing due, during fermentation processes uh, um, so there the parties might have been collect, connected to to alcoholic beverage in the beginning as well so it's an idea personally I like actually very much <laughs> It's one that's um, further continued uh, today, actually. It's one of those old rituals, eh? <laughs> no party before beer, actually. I mean, oh. we, we, had the, uh, we had the steaks, and so the beer would be the natural addition, actually. Exactly. <laughs> so um, what's what's the next step for Gobleke Tepe? Um, no, Goldbleke... Uh, GT. Okay, we'll say GT, because I suck at it. Um... So what's the next step? I mean, obviously you guys got reports and findings to publish, but is there any more excavation going on? Um, well, our major focus now is indeed publication because it's about time to somehow come to a synthesis and to just show uh, the finds and context and everything. And furthermore, um, there is a shelter to be constructed um, over the excavation areas. I already mentioned that winter is quite a rainy season in, uh, in this area mm. and well while the hunter-gatherers did us the favor to cover it all and uh, those helping to preserve it actually uncovering it um, proved to be um, quite of a complicated situation because the rain there definitely somehow um, interacts with the limestone so it's our responsibility at the moment actually to really make sure that this site will be uh, preserved in the future as well. So the construction of two large um, shelter roofs is on the way, should be start this year, early this year, which means that our scientific focus, because you can't work, um, excavate on the construction site, that's uh, pretty dangerous and almost impossible. So our work shift more to the um, process of fines and the publication for this year at least. Of course, there are a lot of more questions we would like to answer by excavation, um, and we probably will do so as soon as these roofs are um, finally finished. And just uh, finally, um, obviously, uh, in that part of the world, I mean, you're very near Syria. Yeah, we can um, actually we can, we can look into Syria from the mountain. Yeah, it's, it's in an visible distance yeah i mean with that uh with the situation going on in syria at the moment i mean how has that changed things on site has it changed things i mean it, well it didn't exactly um influence our work there so um turkey is securing its borders and i mean you see the burning villages on the distance that's true you also see a lot of refugees uh, in in town so i think one year turkey really had to deal in, in that area with about 200,000 refugees in a week or so but our work itself is not not um, directly um, influenced by this what we notice do notice indeed is that tourism is um, decreasing so um, the, there's a new uh, museum, for example, uh, was was opened in Ofa just a couple of years ago, last year or two years ago. Yeah. And the site itself opened a visitor center, and they somehow tried to um, yeah to channel all the tourism masses we had. Uh -huh. uh, last year we had up to thousand tourists a day visiting the excavation, which is quite a challenge if you're running an active excavation and still exactly. have to deal with the tourists. But last year I was there. Um, the number in tourists had dramatically increased. Mm -hmm. 
uh, decreased actually. So we have a, a handful of people actually visiting. So that is maybe the, the more visible uh, uh, part of the, the conflict there. But the archaeological work itself is thankfully right now not really threatened or something like that. That's good. That's good. Um, I'm just um, trying to think of um, some of the, there are some more famous people who've, uh, well, famous or infamous, <laughs> who've uh, come across GT and tried to use it before. I don't know if you're familiar with Mr. Hancock. Hey, actually, I, I, I am the correspondent. And while he really seems to be a great and nice guy, in, in, uh, according to our correspondence, his books certainly are, well... Not, not, not. Ex I wouldn't exactly agree on all points. Let's, let's. <laughs> That's very diplomatic of you. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, um, I mean, generating interest in the site is always a good thing. But it's about getting the information out. So if people are wanting to find out more, um, where can they find you online? Um, well. The, of course, the institute has a has a website, a project website, and we just started to establish some kind of well, they call it um, electronic research reports, and they are in German and as far as I know, they are also translated into English, and we write them I think every half a year or quarter a year, mm -hmm. and they are published online as PDF on the uh, homepage of the German Archaeological Institute. Um, I just uh, have to look for the address myself. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's D A D A I N S T, I think, because that's the, yeah, dainst.org. So D A I N S T.org, and this is the homepage, and from where you can just um, move your way uh, to, to the projects, research projects, and so on. That would be the first um, thing, of course. To, to look for information. And then um, I also have a homepage, um, just my name, uh, jensnotov.com, and I try to keep my publication list there um, up to date. Well, as according to, to any copyright issues, of course, I can't upload every uh, paper, mm -hmm. but I try to collect the, the stuff we publish to make it accessible for people who are interested. And, yeah, besides that, um, anyone who's writing me with a serious uh, interest in, in this kind of work um, would definitely get an answer and some, some research papers as well, I'm sure. Oh, that's really nice. Um, jetzt will ich auf Deutsch reden. Ich habe ein paar Fragen über Archäologie in Deutschland und ich wollte wissen, was man uh, tun muss, um ein Archäologist in Deutschland zu werden. Ha. Soll ich auch auf Deutsch antworten? Oder? Ja, auf Deutsch antworten. Wir haben okay. ein kleines Stück, das es auf Deutsch ist. Hier. Perfekt. Ähm, ja, zunächst, ähm, ein Archäologiestudium ist, äh, glaube ich, grundsätzlich keine schlechte Idee, um Archäologe zu werden. Mhm. Ähm, ich glaube, fast jede größere Universität in Deutschland, ähm, das ist ja, leistet sich den, das muss man heute ja fast sagen, den Luxus eines, äh, auch Archäologie anzubieten. Sei es jetzt klassische Archäologie, Prähistorie, Ägyptologie, vorderasiatische Archäologie mhm. oder was auch immer. Und die Ausbildung ist meines Erachtens, trotz Umstellung auf Bachelorstudiengang und allen mhm. Dingen, die damit zusammenhängen, eine sehr gute in Deutschland. Mhm. Was ich persönlich schade finde in der jüngsten Entwicklung ist, dass meines Erachtens die praktische Arbeit ein bisschen zu kurz kommt. Feldarbeit, Feldforschung, Ausgrabung. Ja, ja. 
Denn ich erinnere mich, dass ich während, ich habe noch einen Magisterstudiengang gemacht, ja. wir haben eigentlich jedes, jede Semesterferien im Sommer auf Ausgrabungen zugebracht und es war, soweit ich mich erinnere, auch notwendig zum Abschluss mindestens fünf Wochen Grabungserfahrung zu haben. Ich bin mir nicht sicher, ob das jetzt noch der Fall ist, aber gerade auf der Ausgrabung lernt man meines Erachtens das wesentliche Handwerkszeug der Archäologie, denn unser Alleinstellungsmerkmal ist ja, dass wir, eine, wir haben eine einen Weg der Quellenbeschaffung mit der Ausgrabung, der wirklich nur der Archäologie zu eigen ist. Das heißt, dass ich persönlich würde darauf auch wirklich hinweisen, dass neben dem Studium auch solch praktische, praktische Sachen einfach wichtig sind, dass man versucht, Felderfahrung zu sammeln. Und dann kann man, glaube ich, schon, wenn man die Ausdauer hat und den langen Atem hat, durchaus bei der Archäologie bleiben. Es ist natürlich nicht einfach, hinterher auch einen Job zu finden. Das ist, glaube ich, jedem bewusst. Ja. Nicht bewusst sein, der, der dieses Studium anfängt. Ja. Und äh, wie finden Leute Archäologe? Ich meine, hier im, äh, in UK ist, äh, oh Mann, du machst Archäologie? Wow. Oh, erzähl uns eine Geschichte von, äh, ja, ja, weißt du, äh, wie ist es in Deutschland? Es ist äh, in der Regel auch... Äh, also die erste Reaktion, die man äh, bekommt, ist, ha, Archäologe wollte ich auch mal werden. Jeder wollte <lacht> Archäologe werden. Und natürlich ist das Bild ähm, ja. ganz klar geprägt von, ähm, von der Popkultur. Also Indiana Jones, äh, Lara Croft, das sind natürlich äh, die, äh, die Archäologen, in Anführungszeichen. Ich glaube, letztere ist zumindest, äh, soweit ich mich erinnere, nicht mal Archäologin. <lacht> ähm, sind natürlich das sind die, die, die Ikonen, die Bilder, die jeder vor Augen hat. Und ähm, ich gestehe, dass äh, ich, ich auch durchaus ähm, mich nicht ausnehmen möchte. Ich bin ein großer, großer Indiana Jones-Fan, keine Frage. Ähm, natürlich muss man an irgendeinem Punkt klar machen, dass Archäologie keine Schatzsuche ist. Dass, ähm, es geht in der Archäologie nicht vordergründig um den einzelnen schönen Fund, der im Museum hübsch in der Vitrine aussieht, sondern uns geht es eigentlich um Zusammenhänge, ähm, um das Umfeld des Fundes. Der Fund selbst ist toll. Mhm. Aber ähm, das da drumherum, ähm, wie kam der Fund in den Boden? Was sagt eigentlich der Fundkontext aus? Das ist das Wichtige. Und ähm, das scheint aber ähm, meines Erachtens auch äh, in der Öffentlichkeit hier in, in, in Deutschland, ich denke auch in anderen Teilen Europas, anzukommen. Es gibt in Deutschland mhm. viele Fernsehsendungen, die sich mit Archäologie ähm, befassen. Und ähm, Journalisten, mit denen ich mich unterhalten habe, meinen auch, ähm, Archäologie geht immer. Das ist ein Thema, das zieht in jedem Fall. Insofern ist ein großes öffentliches Interesse da. Ja, das ist echt gut. Ich meine, ähm, hier in England und Schottland, ähm, äh, mit, wenn es, weil Ökonomie nicht so stark ist, ähm, die Projekte, die einmal ähm, Geld gehabt hat, ähm, jetzt haben kein Geld. Und ähm, was passiert in Deutschland? Ist das äh, ebenso? Ja? Also es ist ähm, nach wie vor ein großes äh, Thema, dass man äh, Finanzierung findet. Wir haben in Deutschland die glückliche Situation, dass es die Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft gibt, die ähm, ähm, Forschungsgelder verteilt. Also man kann mit seinem, wenn man eine Projektidee hat, kann man einen Antrag schreiben, das der Deutschen Forschungsgemeinschaft vorlegen. Und dann ähm, werden je nach Verfügbarkeit und nach ähm, Projektidee, diese Ideen werden natürlich äh, bewertet, äh, gibt es ähm, Gremien, die die ähm, diskutieren die Anträge und auch bewerten. Und wenn man ähm, eine gute Idee, eine innovative Forschungsidee hat, dann kann man auch ähm, durchaus Forschungsgelder von der DFG bekommen. Die ähm, werden aus Steuermitteln äh, finanziert. Mhm. 
und ähm, dann kann man da darauf aufbauen und sein Projekt ähm, antreten. Aber das ist natürlich auch äh, keine Selbstverständlichkeit. Also es ist wirklich auch hier ein Problem, ähm, Gelder für, für archäologische Forschung äh, zu finden, natürlich. Man muss sich schon selbst ja. Aber es ist immer so hier auch. Ähm, Archäologie ist kein wirtschaftlich relevantes Fach, das muss man einfach sagen. Ähm, ja. äh, generell Kulturwissenschaften haben, ähm, ja, das muss man sich leisten können. Es ist einfach so. Es, der, der, der Output ist nicht in, in, in wirtschaftlichen Faktoren zu messen, sagen wir es mal so. Ja. 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 Well, thank you very, very much for uh, talking to me today. And uh, again, I'll just link to all your stuff uh, below if you were interested in that. Um, there's actually a few German, uh, there's a German, other than other German archaeology podcast out there, isn't it? Do you know it? Yeah, Der Butler. Uh, I highly recommend it, actually. Uh, he's, uh, he's working in the museum in Halle, if I'm not uh, mistaken, and he really does a great job. So if you speak German, um, just give it a try. It's definitely worth it. Uh, yeah, and even if you don't speak German, you know, it's a great way to learn. Exactly, it is. <laughs> and it's that not that difficult. <laughs> I guess I still don't know the technical terms of German, so that's that's my limit. <laughs> well, thank you once again uh, for speaking to me and speaking about um, the place I can't actually pronounce. Gerbekli <laughs> Tepe, thanks, thanks for inviting me for, for the podcast. It was fun. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries. Hoax or fact? Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.